Louise and I went to see optometrist this week, and uh, you know, he said to Louise, he was asking us questions about how we do stuff and how far we are about. So he says, so Gary, when you preach, you know, do you wear your glasses? I said, no. He says, well, then how do you see? I said, because I blow up my font so big that I can see it from a mile away. Um, the point that I'm trying to make is, is that when we, where we started the series, and I know some of you maybe haven't listened to any of it yet, or this is our third week or our third installment. Up front, what does God want? Ultimately, God wants you and me. That's, that's his agenda from start to finish. It's as simple as that. And then I started off by looking at context, and I gave this example where if I, context, words without context mean absolutely nothing or can take you down the wrong road. So if I said to you, I live in Bryanston in a penthouse uh, apartment overlooking a golf course, and I drive a Mercedes-Benz, what does that conjure up in terms of who I am and my wealth? But if I told you that it was actually it's a bachelor's flat overlooking the adventure golf course at Brightwater Commons, and I drive a 1970 Mercedes-Benz, it gives you a totally different context, doesn't it? And so the important thing is context is king, and it's important for us to understand what the Bible is saying, what the writers meant in their context at their time. Otherwise, we read the Bible and we just automatically assume based on tradition and based on what's handed down and based on what the church is maybe uh, emphasizing at that particular moment. Louise then came, and one of the things I said was the English translations can miss out on stuff and can hide things from us, not purposefully, just the way it kind of happens. And I gave examples, like the word love in Greek is made up of a whole bunch of words, love. There's agape, there's eros, there's phileo. They all mean different things. There's the unconditional love, there's the brotherly love, there's the eros kind of almost sexuality love. And we just read the word love, and we think we understand what the word is trying to say to us. And in the Hebraic sense, there's also a whole bunch of things there. And that's why if I say to you, if I say trunk, what comes up in your minds? Is it an elephant trunk? Is it the boot of a car in America, the trunk? Is it a chest, or, you know, a trunk? Is it maybe a tree? You see what I'm saying? And so often what happens is in the translations, we lose emphasis and we lose emphases and then we forget what's out there. And the whole point of this particular series is to open our eyes up to the unseen realm, what the Bible really is saying, and then actually go and read around the context of when the Bible was written to understand what the writers were actually referring to. Because if we've got texts that we don't understand and then we simply gloss over them because we go, oh, I'm not quite sure how to explain that and so we don't actually teach on it. No, no, we as the church need to go and we need to mine that because it's up to God to conceal a mystery, but it's up to the kings to go and search it out and to find what those mysteries are. So we are looking and we're really excited about this. Personally, as Louise in particular studied this with Michael Heiser and as we've chatted and as we've started to study and as we've started to see the breadth of God's word, I'm praying and like we said in our prayer meeting, I'm trusting that even after today and after next week and after the following week, you will get more of an insatiable desire to go and study the Bible, to read the Bible, to get all of what it's about. Because often we read this Bible and we go, yeah, I know Moses, I know Noah, I know all these things. But what about the Nephilim? What about the watches? What about these other spiritual beings, sons of God, that we're going to talk about this morning? What about all these things? You go, Gary, what are we talking about? If you've got any questions, come and speak to us. I'll give you the references. I'll give you the reading material. Uh, or at least go to where you can find it so you can understand this. So this morning, we're going to talk about God's heavenly family. What do you mean God's heavenly family? Well, I'm going to get into it in a moment. Because isn't it interesting how people are so fascinated with all the supernatural, superhuman stuff? 
If you want to know anything about DC and Marvel, go speak to Jordan. He knows who's what, who's where, what the timeline is, what Batman actually did and what he meant and everything else. So people are fascinated with the superhuman stuff. Even going back to the X-Files uh, in the 80s and 90s, remember those things when we used to watch what was going on, this, you know, woo-woo, you know, like woo-woo, you know, and they had that tune that they had. Um, you've even got the Harry Potter stuff, and everybody loves these kind of, you know, extra supernatural kind of phenomenons, and, and what does it mean? And uh, the, the question is, is why do we have this, this fascination? Every person I know has a fascination of what is out there. Are the aliens? Are the, is the other life forms out there, etc., whatever the case is. And the question is, is possibly it's because we want to escape the ordinary. Because it's this big good and evil fight. And as you can see, what I've got up there is, is, is the Lord of the Rings kind of setup. And maybe it's this battle for Middle Earth. And Sawan is this evil that needs to be overcome. And Gandalf and, and Frodo and everybody else is going after to get this ring and to destroy it and everything else. And the more evil and otherworldly this particular person is, the better the victory. And we see this massive battles happening. And, and that's been done for, I think, when did... Um, What's his name? Right at uh, the Hobbit and Tolkien in the 60s or 70s or something. So for decades, this story has grabbed a hold of people, either in written form or in the movies as we've seen it. And the point is, is with all of this stuff, is, is that it takes us to this place where, there's, especially when it's magnified from a cosmic perspective. And, and as you know, Tolkien actually be, became a believer and believed in Jesus. And a lot of this was kind of imagery around some of the stuff that he saw in terms of his writings. So, again, why supernatural fascination? Well, Ecclesiastes says that man, everything is beautiful in his time. He's also set eternity in the hearts of humanity. Every single one of us kind of, we think that we, we know that there's something out there. There's something more than what we are experiencing on Project Planet Earth. And so we, we're searching for more because we know we were made to live forever. Sin came and caused decay in us. Go read Romans chapter 8. And because of that, now what happens is, is we die. And I know, I don't know if you guys know, but uh, Natalie, Willem and Natalie, Natalie's mom passed away yesterday morning. That's why they're not here this morning. So keep them in your prayers. Give them a call. Encourage them. Love on them. Uh, they're very sore. And, uh, and obviously the grieving of loss. Jesus wept when Lazarus died, which I've never understood because he was going to raise him from the dead five minutes later. But I think he saw what death does with humanity and the tearing that happens. And it's sore for all of us. The thing is, is that when we've got this yearning beyond all of these things, the problem is, is that the church has largely avoided the teachings around this kind of stuff, especially in the age of modernism. As we hit kind of the 50s and 60s, 1950s, 1960s, and modernism. Now, modern, modernism, in essence, is, well, no, there must be a, a, a factual, um, logical understanding as to why this happened. So if we take the Israelites and we take the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were chasing the Israelites, and the Israelites went across the Red Sea, and then the Red Sea fell on the, the Egyptians and drowned them, and people go, no, that wasn't the case, and this whatever, because this and the other, and people trying to explain this, and then Noah and the flood, and it wasn't a worldly flood, it was a localized flood, and, and we get all these kind of things, and they have to explain all of this stuff, when actually a lot of it is a mystery that we won't understand this side of eternity. Tell me how light is both matter and a wave. Not even scientists can tell you that. That's why you can have laser treatment, but it's also different in terms of a wave. And so we've got a lot of mysteries that we don't understand this side of Project Planet Earth. 
And we have these things called angels. Now, do you know that in the Bible, angels don't have wings? Not once do they mention an angel with wings. But, but we, we want to see the angel with the, you know, the flappy, and that's how we see it. Flappy. They're always depicted as human beings, humanity. Now, there, are, there is another being called cherubim, and as you can see, there's the cherubim right in the middle. Those are really crazy-looking animals or beings. They've got eyes all over the place. They look like animals, but they don't, and they're all kinds of stuff. If you go read the Bible, you start to see that. Go read every revelation. And so there's cherubim that, yeah, they've got wings. But we've always seen angels as wings. Why? Where did that come from? You see, through tradition, we've just believed certain things. And then we believe all, all the demons have horns and look like that. Ah, wrong. Again. But we've learned this because actually what there is is the demons and demon possessions are actually really quite small things that we should be worried about. There's actually a bigger sinister evil that pervades Project Planet Earth. And like I said, if you've been on social media, you will see that happening across the world today. The Bible says in the last days, men and women will invent ways of doing evil. But actually, they are actually being influenced by these evil beings, which we will go into over this, this, this series and show you how this all works. And so actually, demons and angels are actually minor players in the whole God story. But we've elevated them to this place. And actually, an angel is simply a messenger. Angelos means one who brings the message. They are smaller players, and the church hasn't even got to the big boys in the game. And we don't even look at that. And if we don't understand that, we don't know what to pray against. We don't know, we're not aware of what's going on around us. And if we look at the world today, we can see that. So I'm going to show you a quick video. Ray, the, the first one, please. The EMV, something XYZ. If you pick up the Bible, you don't have to read far before you meet the main character, God. Yeah, he appears in the Bible's first sentence. And then later on page one, you meet the humans. And there you have it. The two main players in the Bible, God and humans on the stage of our world. Well, not quite. In the Bible, there's actually a way bigger cast of characters than just humans and God. Like who? I mean the figures called the Elohim in the Hebrew scriptures. Angels, the Satan, demons, they're all over the story. Oh, right. Spiritual beings. To be honest, I've never really known what to do with them. It's all kind of weird. And unfortunately, almost all of our modern conceptions about these beings are based on serious misunderstandings. All right, so let's talk about spiritual beings in the story of the Bible. So first thing we have to do is reorient ourselves to how the ancient biblical authors saw the world. On pages one and two of Genesis, God brings order to a watery wilderness, separating the skies above from the land below. Right, this is earth where we live. And then there's the heavens high above, which they saw as God's domain. But in the Bible, these spaces are not separate. They overlap. And in fact, the Garden of Eden is described throughout the Bible as a high mountain garden where heaven and earth are one. Cool. So that's the world. Now it needs some creatures. God first creates and appoints the sun, moon, and stars to rule the day and night. You mean the giant flaming gas balls in the sky? Well, that's how you think about them. But the biblical authors, like all ancient people, saw them as heavenly creatures that are glorious, shining bright, and high above. Which is strange. I don't think of stars as creatures. Well, you don't. But for the biblical authors, the stars formed their categories for thinking and talking about a spiritual reality that exists alongside ours. And it's a different kind of reality, just like the sky is different from the land. And it's populated with creatures that have different kinds of bodies, shiny spiritual bodies. 
Okay, so almost all ancient cultures thought of the stars as divine beings, including the ancient Israelites. But the biblical authors make clear that these beings are not God. Rather, they're images of God. Their glory and high status is a reflection of the Creator's glory and status, and they exist to serve His purposes. So the stars symbolize beings who are like God's heavenly staff team. freaked out now. So two weeks ago, I, uh, I shared the scripture out of Job. It says, where were you? And this is God speaking to Job, where Job's kind of giving God some gears. It's like your two-year-old telling you how to drive the car. And God's going, uh, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? <laughs> Tell me if you have understanding of how I did all of that. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or what laid the cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Okay, so we have these other spiritual beings that existed when the earth was created who were basically having a party because of what God was doing, creating Project Planet Earth and humanity. And he calls them morning stars, which is interesting. Because in all of this, what we have is we've got this spiritual or these sons of God, which are these spiritual beings that were around when God created the earth. So God had a family before he created us as a family here on Project Planet Earth. Sure, Gary, what are you talking about? Why haven't I heard about this? Okay, Stay with us. Don't get freaked out. Don't wig out. Just follow us with this process. The thing about the sons of God is called Elohim. And what that is, is this term identifies these spiritual beings that kind of have a higher responsibility or jurisdiction that God has given. And so there's this hierarchy within the context of the spiritual realm or the unseen realm. And within that, the ancient Israelites understood this. They understood that you had angels who were simply messengers, but you had these sons of God who were actually part of a closer counsel to God. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. And like I say, the angels were less important. Now, with all of this, Job 38 refers to, and we've just seen the Bible project thing, of these sons of gods as these morning stars. Why? Because the ancient Israelites and the ancients of the time believed that these stars were life. That because they moved, because they shone, that they showed, yes, thank you, I'm with you, is, uh, <clears throat> is that the whole thing is that they were alive and that they had life. And so the, the, the twinkling, the moving of the stars showed that they were moving beings. Now, obviously, we go, really? How did you get that? But the point is, is that's how they understood it. And they understood that these beings inhabited a, 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 an invisible realm, an unseen realm, the heavens, the skies, rather than living on Project Planet Earth. And it was in a, un, uninhabitable by, by human beings. We can't get there. But they can actually come to us, and I'll get to that in a moment. So, the sons of God is actually a family concept. Sons, daughters of God. And so it's talking about the fact that God had this family. And it's very similar to the Acts 17 text where Paul is talking about the fact that as we as human beings are God's offspring. In the same way, he created these other beings that are in the spiritual realm. And it's important for us to understand this because they were non-human. They are spiritual beings that existed before we were created as a creation called Project Planet Earth and Humanity. And they were under God's authority and they inhabit this divine unseen realm. Sure, Gary, where are you getting all of this? How are you going through all of this? And my question here is, is 
There are several passages in the Old Testament. We're not even going to get through it. If you want to go into more of these details, we will show you more of these details as we go. But it describes the administration structure of heaven. And as you go through, you start to just see this mushroom thing happening. And you go, oh, my goodness. God is just more amazing than I even thought possible. And that's hopefully where we're going to land at the end of the series. Psalm 89. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in this assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around. What about Daniel 7? Talks about thousands upon thousands attending to him and the court that was seated. It keeps going on. So we have this task team that God has that actually takes what God wants and his decisions and goes and actually administrates it and makes it happen. And we're going to show you how all of that works. And um, what's interesting is that God refers to this as kind of this um, assembly or this council or this court in terms of what it is. And the best example of that is, is Psalm 82 where it describes this best. And it says, God presides in the heavenly council in the assembly of the gods. He gives his decision. And that's the good, good news translation. Huh. Okay, so let's start to have a little bit more understanding of what this is all kind of telling us. Well, the word Elohim and its meaning. Okay, so let's read it again and let's put the Hebrew there. It says, God, Elohim, stands in the divine assembly and administers judgment in the midst of the plural Elohims. So all of a sudden we can see, okay, so there's more than one God, well, as we see. Now we go, okay, hold on, Gary. I thought there was only one God. Just wait. Hold your horses. We're going to get there. And when we understand this, we understand that this referring to multiple spiritual beings that existed before Project Planet Earth came. But there is just one Yahweh. There is just one uncreated being who created all of this. And that's who we serve. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, Ray, if you can play the second video, please. When most people think about the story of the Bible, when most people think about the story of the Bible, they think of a story about God and humans. But remember, we learned that there's a whole other cast of characters that appears throughout the Bible and plays a really important role. Right. Spiritual beings, angels, demons, and the like. Right. And in the Bible, they inhabit the heavenly realm, which is parallel to our earthly reality and actually overlaps with it. Now, all of these spiritual beings have their own unique characteristics. But here's what's fascinating. The biblical authors have one word that can refer to all the inhabitants of the spiritual realm. In Old Testament Hebrew, the word is Elohim, and in New Testament Greek, it's Theos. But here's the thing. This word gets translated in lots of different ways depending on which being is referred to. Angels, gods with a lowercase g, or even God with a capital G. Wait, so one word can refer to any of these beings? Yeah. It's because Elohim is a category title. It can designate any spiritual being that belongs to the heavenly realm. Okay, a title, not a name. Like the word mom. Yeah, right. The word mom can refer to lots of really different kinds of people, but they all share in common the same role in a family. And then let's say a group of brothers and sisters are talking and one says, hey, it's mom's birthday. They're using the title like it's a name. But it would be clear that they're referring not to any mom, but their mom. Yes, and the same goes for the biblical authors. They called their God Yahweh, which is the name revealed to Moses. But they also sometimes refer to him with the category title Elohim, using it like a name, because they all know who they're referring to. Okay, but don't the biblical authors think that Yahweh is in a class of his own, not like any other? They do. 
Which is why they say things like, Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohim, that is, the chief Elohim among all the others. Or they'll say, there's no Elohim beside Yahweh, meaning no other spiritual being compares to him because only he is the ruler and creator of all things. Okay, I'm following, but I thought the Bible taught monotheism, which means there's just one God. Well, the biblical authors are claiming that among all of the spiritual beings out there, only one is the source and creator of all things, including the Elohim. That's biblical monotheism, that one Elohim, Yahweh, is above all other Elohim, that is, the other spiritual beings. Now, with all that said, we are ready to learn more about who these other Elohim are and how they fit. All right. That explains kind of a very overarching thing. Let's go into some of those details. Let's start to have a look at what this is. So Elohim in the Bible refers to six different aspects or, or beings throughout the different texts that we'll look at. It refers to God himself, as has been represented on the video. Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning, God, Elohim created. All right. It refers to, to demons in Deuteronomy 3.17, where it says, they sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know. And so it refers to demons as Elohim. It refers to human dead and the afterlife. 1 Samuel chapter 28. This is where Saul, the King Saul, he, he bans all the mediums and all those kind of people from the kingdom. But he seems to know where one is. And he wants to go and conjure up Samuel and speak to him. So he gets this medium to basically mediate between Samuel and himself. Now, most people, including myself for many years, have said, no, it's a demon. It's a demon, that one. When it comes up and he calls up Samuel. But actually it says in that text, the medium, Saul says, what do you see? He says, I see the son of God or sons of God. I see a spiritual being coming towards me. And then Samuel arrives and he goes, what are you doing? And he, so it's not a demon who's trying to portray Samuel as Samuel. He's trying to say to himself, he's trying to say, actually, this is who I am. I am Samuel. You've kind of conjured me up from the dead. But they call Samuel an Elohim. What? But only God is Elohim. What about the members of God's council, which we've just been through and you've seen? Again, Psalm 82, Psalm 89, we've been through those texts. Talks about in 1 Kings, gods and goddesses of other nations. Um, and I'm not going to go through all of this, but it's helpful to show you what the texts are saying. It says, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, goddess of the Sidonians, and Chemosh, the god of Moab, and, the Milik, and, and Milcom, the god of the Amorites. So they're talking about all these other gods in this whole process. And then it talks about angels and the angel of the Lord in, in specifically. Now Louise is going to preach on this. And it's really referring to Jesus. But the point is, as we're talking about Elohim, is, is a name that's given to multiple different beings. And the thing is, is that Yahweh is greater than any of these other Elohims. And that's why it says, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in the heavens above and the earth beneath. There is only one uncreated being, and his name is Yahweh. Psalms 97 says the same thing. For you, O Yahweh, are most high of the earth. You are highly exalted above all gods. You know that monotheism is only a 17th century word. It's amazing how the church takes on these things, takes on these things from church fathers, and we make a doctrine rather than reading the Bible and making sure the Bible is speaking rather than the commentators on the Bible. Unique qualities are assigned to Yahweh. Again, you saw some of those things, but here's some more detail. Yahweh is all-powerful. I'm not going to read the text. You can go and read these texts. 
They're actually way more than what I've got here. A sovereign king over all the other Elohim, the creator of all the members of his council, the lone Elohim who deserves worship from all other Elohim. There is only one Yahweh, in Nehemiah it says, and Yahweh has absolutely no equal. And it's important for us to understand that he is the one and only God. You are God and there is no other. You are God and there is none like you. You've probably heard me say that a hundred times over the last five years. The point is, with all of this stuff, is that the Elohim, let's understand who they are. God is Elohim, but no Elohim is like God. Or Yahweh is an Elohim, but no Elohim is like Yahweh, if that makes sense. So all beings, they all have this in common, that they are spiritual beings who reside in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual world. And the point is, is they don't all have this. When we hear the word Elohim and we, we immediately go to the word God, we are thinking of God the Father with certain qualities and, and abilities and all of those things. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's all of those kind of things. But the point is, is that Yahweh is clearly distinguished as Yahweh without the word Elohim by all those texts that I've just shown you. And so he does have the superior attributes. He is the one who is above all things. And he's the one who created the other Elohim. So Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. So some of the other historical views of Psalm 82. Some say, no, 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 no. this is God the Father speaking to Jesus and Holy Spirit. But if you go read the Psalm, then actually he's sentencing Jesus and Holy Spirit to death for the corruption that they've just perpetrated. It's a little bit of a heresy moment there. And then he's also giving them... Uh, uh, authority over the nations, which okay, possibly that could happen, but he's chastising them because they actually failed in their task. So who's he speaking to? He's not speaking to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and we'll get to that in a moment. When I say a moment, probably in some weeks ahead. What about another view, which the Elohim are humans. In fact, more specifically, they are G uh, Jewish leaders that are in God's council, that are, that are connecting with God. The problem here is, is that nowhere in Scripture are Jewish leaders given authority over nations. Only spiritual beings are, sons of God are, and we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. In fact, the opposite is true. Israel were to be separate from all the nations, and they were to be a blessing to the nations, as it says in Genesis, only if they were wholly devoted to Yahweh himself. And so human beings are not by nature this kind of disembodied entity or being. And even though I know, like in Isaiah 6, we can actually go and we can enter into that spiritual realm and and John in, in Revelation, and many, I'm pretty sure many of us have had that experience where we've almost gone into a, a, a trance or a spiritual moment, and we've kind of experienced the spiritual realm to some extent. The point is, is that we can't live there. And the Elohim and the unseen realm is a place of residence of the Elohim. And humanity doesn't live there. And it, the, the reality is this whole human view doesn't line up with any of the other texts. We've already gone through Psalm 89. Look at that. This council, this place, this... Realm is, is not where human beings live. It's in the skies. Job chapter 1. I mean, who who's often read Job chapter 1? And we think Satan's coming in. No, no, look. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also. It's in your Bible. But how many of us have only seen Satan coming and saying, hey, what about Job? Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord 
the glory due to his name. See, all of these texts, they do not speak of human beings. <laughs> they speak of spiritual beings in the unseen realm. And ancient Israel would not have believed that a deceased human being or a demon were on the same level as Yahweh. Why would they call them God? Why would they call them Elohim? So, let's have another quick think because we talk about this monotheism. And if we think there are multiple gods, Elohim, then aren't we talking about polytheism? And many people believed that actually Israel was a polytheistic setup first and then became monotheistic. What does that mean? That they worship multiple gods like pantheism does within the context of Hinduism and Buddhism. Or, and, and then what happened is that they came to this place where they, oh no, it's just one God. But that's actually badly, as a result of a bad understanding and rooted in the misunderstanding of what Elohim actually means. So when we look at this, and we look at how we understand this, and, and in terms of this whole thing, is we can see that Yahweh is totally different and unique from any other Elohim. And the biblical writers, they assign these attributes around the word as showing that these other spiritual beings are not equal to Yahweh. And I know I've said this, but I'm trying to say that. How many times do you say something just one more time? So the plural Elohim doesn't produce this pantheon of these interchangeable uh, equal deities. And the, the, the texts are evidence of that from time and time again as we go through it all. Now, I'm not going to go through this text, but what you will see is that <laughs> these kind of uh, gods come and they want to entice Ahab. And actually one of the sons of God said, no, I'll go do it. Now, we can't understand that. Well, hold on a second. God doesn't do that. But there is the text, but we don't want to understand that. But you see, sometimes divine beings, sometimes these sons of God take on human forms. Now, does that not start to understand how Greek mythology came into play? See, we all go, how did the Greeks believe that? I mean, come on, you guys were like the the top thinkers in the world at one stage, and yet you believed in Zeus and Apollos and all that. Well, maybe there were divine beings that they came into contact with, that they now saw that, <coughs> excuse me, these divine beings were coming to Project Planet Earth at times, which is exactly their mythology, which exactly is what the Bible is saying to a certain degree in various aspects. Just misunderstood, misapplied. I can see people are getting wigged out. It's cool. I talked about Isaiah 6 earlier. What about Jesus? Because John chapter 1 and another, I think two other, three other texts, it talks about that Jesus is the only begotten son. And what can happen is, is we can misunderstand that because that kind of goes against everything I've just said. Because if Jesus is the only son of God, then why, Gary, are you talking about all these other gods and other sons of God? What are you talking about? Well, the Greek phrase monogenes, and as you can see, mono, one, genes, or only, and beget, or bear. So it's from our genes. That's where we get those words. Now, that's how we thought that those two words were the ones that were put together. And if you know any Greek, what often happens is, is they combine words to bring meaning. And if you bring the wrong word, that they're, what they're trying to combine, you end up with the wrong meaning or slightly variant meaning. And what they found out was actually the second part of that word was not from the word geneo, which was a verb, but actually from a noun, geneos, genos, which talks about class or kind. So the word, when we talk about the only begotten son, we're not talking about created. We're talking about the uniqueness of it. So in the same thing, when we read this, 
that Jesus is this unique, one-of-a-kind, and has no connotation to creation whatsoever. So Jesus is identical to Yahweh and is unique among all the other Elohim who serve God, and this does not contradict all of what I've just said. And this view is proved because the same word and the same process is in Hebrews when they're talking about Abraham begetting, there's a nice word for you, begetting Isaac and saying it was his only son, but it wasn't his only son. He'd already had Ishmael. Yeah, kind of because he was fulfilling with the maidservant. So Ishmael was already existing. So he, didn't, he had more kids. But what he was saying, this was the unique one. This was the son of promise. This is the son of the covenant. This is from where the Messiah will come. And in the same context, talking about the one-of-a-kind uniqueness attached to all of that. So just as Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim are like Yahweh, so Jesus is the unique son, and no other sons of God are like him. So in summary, and coming into land, Context is king. Go read the context of all of these things. Louis showed you that even though we have some challenges with the English translations, they weren't done to try and hide stuff. It's just that what's happened over the centuries is we've lost sight of what the Bible is actually saying about these things in context and what the biblical writers intended us to understand in their context. And the Bible is the inerrant word of God that we can rely on. Go, go listen to Louise's preach last week. It'll settle you around your security around the Bible. God has a spiritual family. Before he created humanity, there are multiple beings. And we'll get into all of those. They're cool. The Elohim refers to a place of residence within the context of the spiritual realm and does not refer to the attributes or the characteristics of a being. God has a counsel that carries out all of these decisions. And we're going to show you how all of that happened throughout the God story because we're looking at this biblical narrative. We haven't even got to creation yet, guys. There is no other God like Yahweh. So to finish off, I love this. And I don't know if Michael Heiser wrote this, but there's a series that he's done, and I'll send you the link if you want. But this lady who kind of narrates this says, God is creator of all things in heaven and on earth. He is an Elohim that is the creator of the other Elohim. He alone possesses the unique attributes of sovereignty, omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. He is Yahweh, Lord of the council, and the first person of the Trinity. No other Elohim are comparable. The other members of the spiritual realm are referred to as sons of God, as angels, for God's heavenly hosts, and they assist in carrying out God's will in, the, in, in heaven and on earth. When the Godhead, within the Godhead is Jesus, God's unique son and second member of the Trinity. Unlike any of the other sons of God, Jesus is God and co-equal in every attribute shared among the triune Godhead. Just as Yahweh is an Elohim and no other Elohim is Yahweh, so Jesus is the unique son of God and no other sons are like him. I don't know about you, but there is a beautiful untold story that many of us as Christians do not see because the church has not talked about the unseen realm. And when we start to unpack that and as we start to pull open the curtain and we start to see the lens that Jesus 
and what God Father went to and how Holy Spirit empowers us to live out our lives now in the kingdom now and what the gospel really, really means. What this is going to do, I believe, which it has done for me, which it has done for Louise, which is doing to our leadership team, is inspire us because we see that we thought God really loved us, but actually he really, really, really loved us. More than we could think or imagine. 